Welcome to season two of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I am your host, David Pandraj. In this podcast, we speak with some of the leading voices in the field of inclusive entrepreneurship and learn from their best practices to apply in our own communities as practitioners. Today, we're speaking with Del Gaines. Dell is the Lead Community Development Advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City at Omaha Branch. Um, and, you know, she was doing what is called a grounded theory, wave four ethnographic study, you know, which is based upon, you know, really deep interviews into the stories of about, you know, 12 Black women who were um, scaling up their business. And all of them started with, the only funds they started with were their money. So we got into the question of, you know, what is, what is data, you know, what is, what is data? How do we get data? What's, you know, valid data, you know, a lot of times within our space, you know, especially in the economic space, people kind of want these hard numbers, but one of the things we know about ecosystem building is that it's as much about the stories and the deep understanding of the lived experiences of the entrepreneur. And those are things that you can't really understand with what we call quantitative data. So, you know, when we like the concept of data as, as ecosystem builders um, and folks that are working with entrepreneurs, I think it's important to understand why we need it. What are we actually using it for? And then, or even be, even before that, identify what we want to know to effectively, you know, help entrepreneurs start and grow. And most likely it's going to be, you know, pretty decent mix of, of what we call quantitative data, which in short is just, you know, counting beans, you know, bean counting. And some, some is more sophisticated than that, right? Um, you know, you get in things like regression analyses and the various other, you know, kind of quantitative methods like our economists at the Fed use that take these huge data sets and kind of do things to kind of see what's the st statistical significance of them. Um, or simply just counting the numbers of entrepreneurs in your community and things like that. Um, and then there's the qualitative side, which is like kind of like I said, it's the more lived experiences or the soft experiences of, of individuals that we're serving or how they feel about something or how they're interacting with something. Um, and you're probably going to look at a good mix of both of those when you're building out your ecosystem. But the, the, tough, the tough question for us is really, again, is what do we want to know and why? Because, um, and then the third question, which I'm glad with Startup Space and how David and the app and the, the data collection methodology is doing is getting better data to even be able to ask those questions. Because sometimes we can ask questions and there's just no way to get the information in the short run that we may want because there's no high quality data out there for us to make those decisions. So Dell, tell us a little bit more about your work with entrepreneurship led economic development, because traditionally economic development has been focused on uh, bringing HQ2s, right? Like trying to displace one business into another city uh, and entrepreneurship has taken a backseat mainly as a way to not be able to measure because they couldn't measure the tinkerers. Uh, you know, there were not business registrations, et cetera. How can we bring data to the forefront to actually help tell our story that entrepreneurs are the best economic activity generators? Right. Yeah. Well, well, first, David, I mean, we, we need data to even prove and test that assumption. But by all accounts, it's the data that we have and the research that we have is true. Entrepreneurs, uh, so major corporations do have a specific form of value. But that value often isn't what we think it is. It's not necessarily job creation, right? So consistently, um, even going back to the 70s, research shows that, you know, small businesses, and now small growth businesses, usually what we call stage two, 10 to 99 employees that are between the ages of like three and five, generate the most net new jobs. And there's a logic to that if you think about it. Like if you're building a scalable company, the rate at which you're putting on, you're hiring new people, is most likely going to be dramatically faster than a more stable, mature company, whether it's a small business or a corporation. The challenge, though, is within the economic development space. In many cases, people 
think musical chairs is actually creating net new jobs. So for example, if one company moves from city A to city B and with it, they bring 500 jobs, the new community will say, well, wow, we just created, we brought in 500 new jobs. We created 500 new jobs by our economic development strategies. But the reality is, is that unless that corporation that is coming is experiencing significant growth, then they're really just transplanting jobs. And so it's an illusion. So when we, when, we, when we look at America as a whole and the production of new jobs, we're not talking about the musical chairs of industrial recruitment and attraction because in many ways, corporate hiring traditionally hasn't been that great. And at one point I remember it was really flat for a period of time. Like we were putting on new, or what was happening was um, you saw a lot of major corporations, they're actually spinning off non-productive um, units within their business or they were hired from overseas and so we were you know going out and saying hey you know industrial attraction let's give all these incentives to bring in new jobs and, and, and to build new jobs in the community but we were really taking them from other communities if, if they can be taken like that and so I think the data is out there I, I think the question becomes we need more sophisticated data behind it to to, to give policymakers a better understanding of things that they can do to move the needle in the space. So just saying, yeah, small businesses create, you know, net new jobs, the majority of net new jobs is one thing, but it takes a very forward thinking economic developer and municipal policy leader, governor, you know, mayor, whatever, to kind of say, you know what, I know that I, I am elected on every four years but I'm gonna look at a five to 10 year strategy on how we really effectively govern our community for, through the economic development process. And to do that, I'm gonna focus primarily on entrepreneurship. So we need to do a better job developing data methodologies and, and ecosystem frameworks, and then being able to communicate that in multiple ways, including storytelling. Um, give, we need to give our policymakers something that they can float out to the media and say, look at what I did, you need to reelect me. And that's one of the things that that we don't do in regard to my work i've been doing this for 10 years now specifically focusing on ecosystem building um from the day that i walked in the door my boss asked me and i i didn't even have a clue what was ecosystem building when i came in the term and i still don't like the term ecosystem building but when i came in the door she said what do you want to do i said um i said i believe that if we focus on the intersection between small business and economic development we would be thought leaders in five years. And five years later, we hosted the first national ecosystem building conference called Growing Entrepreneurial Communities. And by then we had like three, four guides out and, and, and different things. Um, early stage, it was a lot of rural adoption. You know, a lot of people in rural were having me come out and talk because they there's no noise in rural communities. By that, I mean, they're sitting looking every day at the fact that they're dropping 10%. Some of these smaller communities are dropping 10% of their population every decade and their economic growth has been stagnant for 20, 30 years. So they were like, give me a different way, whatever you can give me, you know, you know, let me know. But when you get into the urban setting in the uh, micropolitan, metropolitan areas, that's where it, it took a while for it to penetrate. But we've been seeing that um, now, and I'm sure all of you have that have been in the space. I've been really seeing the, the, the term ecosystem being used now. And I've, I've never seen it used more in the last year. Like I would, I would be venture to argue that I've seen it used more by different individuals and organizations in the last year than I have in my first nine years of doing this work. Yep, well said. Uh, can we then shift to entrepreneurship-led economic development? Can that replace ecosystem building? Because I think it uh, better speaks to what we do. Uh, so, uh, so Del, I'll kind of shift focus into more tactical stuff. You know, we're all in, in this call. Everybody's a practitioner. Everybody's an, e an ecosystem builder. Can you give us some more practical, tactical information on, you know, if I'm trying to make a case for bringing capital access to my community, or I'm making a case to bring ARP dollars or SSBCI funds, uh, give, give us some uh, practical insights into how do I build a case out and how do I get this in front of the decision makers? See, and, and, and here's, here's the crux of the problem, which is what I was talking about earlier about, you know, that four year cycle of political leadership. So it's, it's really interesting. So my dissertation, my dissertation was on relationship formation, entrepreneurship, ecosystem building, but my literature review was on local economic development. 
and kind of the four major iterations of local economic development from industrial attraction in the 30s, the first form of entrepreneurship development in the 80s. Uh, most of you probably don't, don't even know that we went into the 1980s with roughly 12 incubators nationally. We came out of the 80s with uh, over 200 incubators in the nation. So there's this huge push. And what drove that push actually was data. So uh, a researcher named um, Birch came out with a report in the 1970s that said um, small businesses that create the majority of net new jobs. You had a huge economic downturn in the United States. The federal government pulled a lot out of a lot of the uh, money away from states from doing economic development. So they were like, we have to figure out a different way than industrial attraction. So the paper came out that served as a catalyst. Um, and then a lot of just new and new and different kinds of ways of local economic development with entrepreneurship being one of the primary ones came out of the 80s. And then in the 90s, you have Porter's cluster-based development. And then we have ecosystem building. So the last two are what we call environmental or contextual or system-driven approaches to economic development, where you're looking less at the individual company and you're looking at the environment in which industries and companies exist. In Porter's case, it was like, it was still major industry. With us, it's entrepreneurship. And so the problem is, to, to circle back around to your question, is that in every, every decade, starting in the 60s, Academics said, focusing on the businesses that you have is a better way to do economic development than recruiting firms. But on the other side of the equation, there's a political expediency to recruiting firms. So imagine, um, I, I can't remember where the big Amazon plant ended up, uh, wherever was, they- I think they, Northern Virginia, I think. Was it Northern Virginia? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so imagine what those political leaders were saying when Amazon finally said, we're coming here. Hey, look at us, you know, 40,000, 30,000, how many jobs it was. So we have this, this significant political hurdle that we need to, you know, surmount. And I would argue that it's, it's less about the, the, the tactical and strategic side of ecosystem building, because I think we can all figure that out now. I think we're further enough in the field. We develop strong enough networks. We still need to do a better job. Don't get me wrong. But by and large, we can go and find out if, if we want to build an ecosystem and let's say a, a, a black community, we can find somebody in the space that we can reach out to and learn about their frameworks and figure out how to adapt it, right? High growth tech, whatever, all of those things. We've been working on this for a long time. We have, we have a growing body of folks that have been, been doing it somewhere so that we could connect to them and kind of learn how to do that. So it's less about the tactical side and strategic side and more about the relational side and cultivating you know, relationships with your policymakers, especially now that we have some of these dollars, which we probably need to get in front of sooner rather than later. So, you know, our, so here's, the here's the major difference between, because like I said, I'm a certified economic developer. And the reason I got my CCD way back in 2013, I think, was because I knew that for me to really push entrepreneurship-led development the way that I wanted to, I had to have the credentials, I had to be in those rooms, and I had to understand what they were learning as developers. So one of the things about economic developers, which ecosystem builders are, but they don't claim it usually, is that eco, eco, uh, economic developers traditionally have pretty solid relationships with their municipal leaders, their policymakers, their mayors, their council people, those things. And I would ask, if we were going to do a poll, I would ask the people in this group and say, how many of you have, would say on a scale of one to five, you have a, a, a three or three, four or five level of relationships with your municipal leaders or your government leaders at the state level, right? And these are the people that ultimately are forming the, the economic development policy, the incentive structures. They're the ones that are um, ultimately signing off on um, planning deals all these different things. And a lot of us are not even in those spaces to have those conversations. So then when we want to go, and this is, and I'm, I'm gonna bring the data side into this now. Uh, then when we wanna go and say, we have these um, American recovery plan dollars that are coming that can be distributed towards entrepreneurship. We have the SSBCI dollars that are de dedicated to entrepreneurship. We had the uh, SBA um, community navigator program which is defined for entrepreneurship. And we say these, all of these things would be very, very useful for us as entrepreneurship-led developers and ecosystem builders. 
but yet we don't have a, a relationship with the people that are making decisions on those monies, right? And so once we have the relationship or we use data to have an introduction into that relationship. So I'll give you a real world example. So I'm trying to get David in, in, in startup space into Nebraska because we have a, for the first time ever, we have a black um, head of economic development in the state of Nebraska. He put an office in my community, which is the black community in Omaha. And I now have a weekly meeting with the individual that they put in there. And I know the economic development director. So I'm trying to bring David into that relationship conduit to kind of say, look, here's, here's a, a platform that can do a lot of different things in the entrepreneurship space, including giving us data. But let's say that I didn't have paved those pathways. Me trying to introduce David into that relationship with, to try to get the potential of bringing that product here, which can have huge beneficial to my community, would have been very, very difficult. But the way that I sold it was that, hey, you know, he, this is a great, you know, ecosystem building model, great for entrepreneurship, and it can provide us some data that we can probably cannot get anywhere else based upon the way that it's set up. So those two things work hand in hand because you still need, even within a great relationship, unless it's completely nepotistic or it's just completely, hey, this is my homeboy and I don't care, he, he could have the most terrible product out there, I'm gonna hire him. The, um, we still have to have show value. So it's relationships first, letting them get to know you, being in the room at the table. How many of you regularly go to your chamber meetings? How many regularly go to your economic development meetings, right? How many of you sit on committees that are in the economic development space? How many of you, if the head of the economic development department, either at your state or your city level, how many of them would recognize you by name and know what you do, right? And so the data is, is is what you know kind of sells sells it but the relationship is what gets you in the door and if not you have you're doing a lot of cold calling like in sales you're just trying to you, all of a sudden you're this new person coming up in the room and saying hey entrepreneurship is awesome you know i got this great you know program where we can build out you know these these firms and and support all these other people and they're just looking at you and saying yeah but but re remember the uh 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 SBDC down the street, we know, we know the small business development center, you know, but we don't know you. So that's kind of the, the, the lesson learned is that we, we get so downstream thinking about what we need to do tactically and strategically to build ecosystems that we forget that we're part of a broader political and social ecosystem that drives a lot of the resources. And you know, David, because you're, you're in the rooms as, as well, one of the number one things that we hear and what the, what the focus of our conference is next year uh, um, is gonna be on policy and funding and the connection of policy and funding for ecosystem builders. Predominantly because the number one thing I hear from you all is that we're not getting funded or we have to jury rig our funding, right? So we'll, we'll, most ecosystem builders are, are getting funded through programs you know, versus the um, actual process of ecosystem building. So they're, they're kind of spinning off the money and chipping off money from the program development side, you know, trainings and other things, other forms of development. And then they're using those funds to actually do the work of ecosystem building versus dedicated funding for ecosystem building. And so I guess with the, long story short, what I'm really trying to say in answer to that question is that we want to connect you to the economic development world because there's $70 billion that goes through the states every year for incentive-based economic development, primarily for, for industrial attraction and retention. And so like Victor Huang says in, in Right to Start, and I love it, he's, he said his, his whole premise is, can we get 5%, just 5% allocated towards entrepreneurship-led development? Which, which when you look at the number 5%, you're like, oh yeah, you know, that's a great, Ah, that's doable. 5% is not a big number. It's not even 10%. But 5% of 70 billion, especially when most of you don't even get like $100,000 to do ecosystem building, is, is huge. Well, we had Victor talk about this very topic uh, last month in the community of practice about this 5%. And you know, we're all huge advocates for his work and uh, thrilled that he's started to make move the needle with the work that he's already doing in Missouri. 
uh, I wanted to, you know, there's, there's so many uh, pathways we can go from here, but one of the things that I have been struck by uh, in our work with economic development, so I'll make it into a two-part question. One, uh, I think the, the key value that ecosystem builders, if you differentiate them from economic developers and say they are like lower in the pipeline, uh, they, the ecosystem builders have the trusted connection to the community, which economic developers struggle with. And I think the storytelling around that can be huge. If you can say, if you can articulate your value proposition in that you have the plumbing lines into the community and tell that story, I think the value proposition is very clear. Uh, so I, you know, I wanna go down that path and kind of first try to see you know, if you can help us articulate that value. And then I wanna shift focus on the work you're doing on the other side of the spectrum. So I'll pause on the part B, but would love to hear your thoughts on you know, part A of this and how do we articulate our value clearer yeah, so well, it's, it's, it's only value if it's perceived as valuable. And that goes back to what I, I was just pointing out. Like, we know that it's valuable. We know that the research shows that it's valuable, but is it politically valuable? So, so and so this is why when you see, so I've, I've talked about ecosystem 1.0 and 2.0, right? So this is why you saw ecosystem 1.0 where people were saying, we wanna be like the next Silicon Valley was actually getting traction because you know you could point to very visible when they when they actually hit high growth you know firms that were, were were coming out of ecosystem building work and that was a political win for a lot of folks because they were saying okay we saw this huge you know huddle or flywheel here in Omaha you know and we could point to that and say look at what our ecosystem worked and our work with high growth entrepreneurs did and so what you saw was this early stage division of what we call entrepreneurship and startups in the economic development world and then, oh, small business. Small business is something else, it's over here. But startups, wow. And the reason that it was getting traction was it was because it, it was politically attractive. And so now when we talk about value proposition, we, we still have the same hurdle of the political side but I think two things are, are working in our favor. Um, and one is the unfortunate impacts of the pandemic. I think what it did was it raised the profile of all business types, small and, and um, you know, growth scale up. So micro and you know, what we classify as a scale up firm. The question becomes how long does that energy last within our policymaker space? And so when we go out and we talk, we talk about it, um, I think there's different ways that we can assert our value proposition in some ways that we don't even think about. So we, we know that as ecosystem builders that we are deeply immersed with, within the network of other providers and uh, the entrepreneurs themselves. And so kind of like that real-time data and understanding um, of them is a, is a commodity. I think it's a value. The question becomes, is it valuable enough in and of itself to kind of you know, spin a, a policymaker to say, yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give that 5%. So let's just use that as a benchmark, the 5%. I think it can be. Um, but I think another thing that we don't really look at as a value with that same, you know, set of relationships is we don't connect it back to the fact that we do focus on supply chain opportunities for major corporations. And they are looking for opportunities, especially in the diverse space. I, I don't know how many of you actually are working with major corporations as part of your ecosystem work to talk about how you can help build the capacity of their, their supply chain, their local supply chain, their diverse supply chain. Um, how, how many of us plugged into that side of it? Because, you know, I, I oftentimes really, you know, go hard at industrial attraction and retention because they disproportionately favor, um, you know, very large businesses and which indirectly redistributes wealth to the top 10% of the nation, but they do provide a lot of localized value, both with the transference of the supply chain, but then also when you look at the, the research, it shows that a lot of businesses where major corporations exist and startups and scale-ups come are from people from these firms, right? So if you have, like we have Union Pacific here in Omaha, they're likely to, you're likely to see much more entrepreneurial activity based upon individuals leaving that corporation and using the skills they learn from that corporation to start their own firms, which then can be reapplied into our ecosystem or back into it. So I think if we can better articulate and tell the story, again, which goes back to if we can get better data analysis on that, and we can bring the corporations that currently exist in the fold and get them, get them advocating as well. So 
build our, you know, build our profile of, of what we're doing, how it works, the networks that we have, how it plugs into the corporate sector, how it revitalizes and stabilizes economies, how it works for diverse populations, how we can gather, you know, qualitative, you know, personal insight from the entrepreneurs and other providers and build a denser network. I think we then can have, if we tell that whole story and how it works all together, and we can get advocates from these different sides, then I think it's much more easier to convert a policymaker to say we want to allocate, you know, that 5% of our economic development dollars. And so, but how many of us are really doing that though? So, you know, a case in point, one story, one silver lining of this pandemic was that it showcased how ineffective government programs can be in reaching underrepresented communities. For example, PPP. If you looked at the national rate of application and approval for PPP for people of color and other minority uh, communities, it was like one fifth of the rest of the population. And I think that data set, uh, we published one, several others published other data sets just like that, that I think created a, a movement around this whole community navigator program. Right right, which the SBA said, you know, we need the trusted network on the ground. We want this hub and spoke model we need. And there it clearly articulates the value for the ecosystem builder, because in a lot of cases, economic developers don't have that last mile figured out. They don't have the trusted uh, network. And if you talk to people like Victor, he says it's a decade's worth of work to build a trusted network. You can't simply go and activate that network overnight. And I think, you know, these kinds of uh, tragedies can help uh, strengthen those plumbing lines and help us show value through ecosystem builders and people that have been building communities, uh, right? So I think uh, that was a great case in point for for what you're saying, Dell, around how you can kind of move policy at uh, to make these fundamental shifts. Uh, so I'll ask you the other question, which is that you're also tackling this from the economic developer side with the work that you're doing with IEDC, with with entrepreneurship led economic development coursework to educate economic developers around how to build these ecosystems up. Can you speak a little bit to that work and also, you know, when will we get a chance to actually uh, sample some of this work? It's, well, it's out there. So there's there's actual professional certification now in IEDC on entrepreneurship-led development. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that that's was an initial brainchild of mine as well as the other um, four that host our national conference. You know, we had um, Network Kansas, then it was Penny Lewandowski with the Edward Lowe Foundation, um, which does the economic gardening work. Um, it was Don Mackey from Center for Rural Entrepreneurship and Maria Myers from US SourceLink. And, you know, this was something that I wanted to do prior to, uh, we were held on a thought leader meeting. So every year we used to do our conference biannually in the middle of the year. Uh, or in the off year, we would have a thought leader summit. And so we came together in the thought leader summit. And one of the things that came out of that was we need to get a professional certification. And so we worked through, um, you know, that process, Jeff Finkel was on board because he was looking at it as potential revenue moneymaker at IADC, which proved to be true. Um, and then we, with, between Kaufman and the Economic Development Association, we managed to get funding. Maria, I believe at SourceLink got the contract and subcontract that out with Penny to write it. She got into the horrible accident um, where a drunk driver hit her. So she was laid up for a while. So we kind of crowdsourced the writing of the curriculum. And I wrote the two, the, the, there's two courses now, but I wrote both of the chapters on equity and inclusivity in both of those courses and helped shape the rest of it. That's probably one of the like most vivid, you know, impactful things that I've probably done over the past 10 years. And like I taught in the, the first or second course and they had a hundred people registered for that. And I think the first two courses had a combined two, 150 to 200 people registered at $600 uh, a, a pop for that. And then it's now professional certification and designation. So, you know, I've been working to bring the two spaces together for probably seven years because I just saw that there's this huge divide. For those of you who went to the Eka Kaufman conferences, you you would see that very early on. Like you would see kind of like the the shiny bell ecosystem builders early on in the first ESHIP conference. And you had nobody from the economic development space. We fortunately had a growing entrepreneurship conference because we kind of appealed to a different market at the Fed. We saw a much more broader mix. Um, and then once, you know, Kaufman started continuing to push forward and the field matured a little bit, then you started seeing more economic developers in the space. 
but still it was difficult for the two to see that they were actually working towards the same goals and they actually were both doing the work of economic development because ecosystem builders thought man we're just we build the ecosystem economic developers said well we do industrial recruitment attraction that's the primary way we do this and then you had your traditional small business developers and the three weren't intersecting in any meaningful way now i think we've seen more of that cross-pollinization which has led to more conversations on ecosystem building which gives us uh, now with the iedc professional certification because even if folks don't go to it at least you can say well well look there's a reason why iedc created a sort of a, a specialized certification in entrepreneurship-led development shouldn't you at least think about it local economic developer Nick, shouldn't you at least consider what we do as part of the field of economic development now which is just another brick in, in the credibility of our fields that's awesome congratulations uh dell and we've actually put the link to that course uh, in the chat so for those of you interested uh in signing up for the course uh you can actually sign up right from the link in the chat uh dell you know on the thought round uh the the work that we were doing with the eship summits etc uh, it feels like you got to remove philanthropy from economic development. And as long as philanthropy is in there, it kind of becomes a crux because uh, at the end of the day, philanthropy is great in like testing out solutions, et cetera, but there's no long-term funding in this space, correct? Like if, if you want to really, if you want to create long-term sustainable funding, you got to go to the economic developers because their mandate, they have a mandate, right? They have a clear path to ROI. You, I give you $10,000, you give me two jobs. But in the world of, world of philanthropy, you can't do a one-for-one one or you give me this, I give you that back because you're taking charitable dollars to try and make it give you ROI, which goes against charity. It's, you, well, you can, you just, because Kaufman is a foundation that does, right? And they're, they're why most of you are, know about this work probably. So you, you can do it. I, what I would say is philanthropy should not be the leader of it. Like so, philanthropy, you know, coming in with the issues like social impact investing. Um, the incubator that I used to run was heavily funded by philanthropy, so it can be done. the The problem is, is like what you say, it creates structural problems because the way philanthropy traditionally works. Like, if you're embedded in the, the economic development process within your city or state, and you're getting state allocated funds for the the program, because it's an economic development, you know, focus. That's why that's very much different than having to go write a grant every year to get your program continued. I mean, even if you can get a three-year commitment, which in many cases is rare, you know, you're at the three-year window, then you're having to wonder, you know, how do I continue to do this? So philanthropy can, should be supportive. They shouldn't be the leader of it, you know, especially, um, you know, communities of color or diverse communities or economically challenged communities, because then you're subject to the whim of whatever that philanthropist wants to do in that given year, or if their foundation kind of, um, let's say economic downturn, all of a sudden their, their, their foundation and their endowment is, has less revenue, so they can give less. Now all of a sudden you're like, man, well, I was doing this work, but they're not funding me anymore, so the work has to go away. So, so the, the more we can you know, connect it, and there's people that actually disagree with me on it, and I'm, I'm fine, because some think that it shouldn't be part of the traditional economic development space because then it forces, you know, kind of mission creep and some of the other things. But here's, here's, here's the challenge is that our philanthropists don't know how to do it. And mo most philanthropists, now there's the Entrepreneurial Finance Network that, you know, was incubated in Kaufman. They have like a hundred foundations that are support entrepreneurship and they're spinning off into a formal organization. So that's coming up. Um, I wrote a guide back in 2015, I think it's called uh, the Philanthropist Guide to Funding Small Business Support Organizations. And I'm thinking about uh, maybe updating the next year in, in the, the philanthropist guide to funding entrepreneurship ecosystem building um, but we can't assume that they know it and because most you know like Kaufman is a, is a very focused because their entrepreneur was or their founder was an entrepreneur he said I want to support entrepreneurship and education he dedicated it to it. but the biggest foundation in Omaha is, is Warren Buffett's daughter's foundation it was allocated money to Susie Susie now distributes it to its causes that she wants to do it and it's not the way her father made his money when the market in the business sector. So you have a lot of social, you know, which a lot of our foundations do, they do a lot of, um, you know, attempt at poverty remediation. But the argument that I made, and which I think we need to communicate to philanthropists is that if you truly care about some of these economically distressed communities, then what you do is you work to build their economic environment towards self-sufficiency, 
which you can't do simply by funding poverty remediation programs, then we can make the argument for ecosystem building um, funding. But again, that's to me just looking at philanthropy outside of, of it being embedded within the municipal policy process is a, is a short run win, but a long run loss um, because it should be the other way around. But you got to get that money where you can get it. So if you need to go out and get that money from a philanthropy to do the work that you do, man, you you got to make it happen because it's 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 better to have a short term win than a, a loss everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, so so Dell, another topic that I want to bring up that you're passionate about, which is uh, inclusivity and uh, and equity in entrepreneurship development or entrepreneurship led economic development. Can you talk about some of the programs that you've seen that have run successfully well and the ones that even you've kind of helped build out? Yeah, as well, as a general rule, you know, kind of what I would argue is that uh, you can't truly, and I wrote an article on this on Medium, that you can't be an effective ecosystem builder if it's not inclusive because there's too, there's too much um, waste in the system, right? There's too much waste in the system because what, what happens is, and this is the best example that I use. And I, I say, I, I look at it. If, you're, if you have a woman whose um, entrepreneurial potential is a 10 and a male whose entrepreneurial potential is a five, but the, the male gets 10 in resources, but the woman gets five because she's a woman, then they're both producing the same economic output. The problem is, is that if you resource them the same, she's actually doubling the output of the male entrepreneur. And so what happens when you, when you under-resource or under-optimize your ecosystem or your ecosystem is not inclusive is what you do is you're, you're distributing the resources within the ecosystem in a uh, inefficient fashion. And this is what happens. So how many white people do you know have been, who, who happen to have great relationships, access to the room, access to capital, but were terrible entrepreneurs? while you've probably had a whole cadre of diverse entrepreneurs that probably were better entrepreneurs than that guy, but because they didn't have access to the room, access to the networks, low quality ecosystem, they didn't even scale, right? Or we're even scared to start because that's how we make decisions. We make decisions within the context of our network and our real environment and the things that we see. And this has happened over and over in, in America. And so a, a, a true ecosystem builder is one that is actually inclusive because they're looking to build out an efficient, you know, network of support and things within that ecosystem that will effectively help the entrepreneurs that have the high potential and low potential, whatever potential they have, and it will help sort them into the appropriate road to get to them, them to do what they want. Um, and the challenge is we haven't, I don't know anywhere we've really done a great job of that. Um, to be honest, um, we've, we've seen some programs that have come out, you know, uh, Rodney Sampson's done OHUB, you have Felicia Hatcher down in Cold Fever, Miami, um, a mentee of mine, Christina Long down in Create Campaign, she's doing some great things for, you know, kind of your more your traditional small business and BIPOC communities, and, and you, and you kind of hear those stories, and we're seeing some good stuff in rural communities like Network Kansas um, is doing a great job, and, and, uh, and other folks, but if you look at the way our field is grown, you know, this is kind of like I said, ecosystem 1.0. Everybody wanted to be Silicon Valley's. Everybody focused on high growth, venture capital, exit. You know, that was kind of the main focus. And the, and the target of focus was your, your history. I, I, back 10 years ago, this is what I used to say. I say, if we're not inclusive in our ecosystem building, what we run the risk of is replicating the good old boy network of the 1980s corporate environment into the good old boy network with their sons of entrepreneurship ecosystems. And so early stage, it was, remember if, if any of you were early in the space, you know, eight, nine years ago, like they used to do all of these startup networking meetings and all these hype train things. And you walk in there and it was the, probably 90% young white men and, and maybe a couple Asian developers that were in these rooms. And it was, a lot of the stuff was very fraternity-based party type scenes, you know, where they would go out drinking beer at nine o'clock to talk about the entrepreneurship ecosystem and things like that. And I'm like, even back then I was going to bed at 8.30. So, you know, I wasn't gonna show up at one of those. And, you know, we 
as the field has grown, we've talked more about inclusivity and we've expanded the definition of ecosystem 2.0, which is not just high growth specific, but, but broader. But what we still haven't done is create good typologies of ecosystems, defining you know, how they work in different environments and what they look like in different ways. We haven't done a lot of um, blueprint, um, you know, turnkey type strategies, and we haven't done a lot, of, a great job of developing high quality training, education, and knowledge system building. What we have done a good job of, though, is creating opportunities like this and like at the conferences, et cetera, for cross pollinization of ideas through relationships. But the problem is, is that while that's extremely valuable as a base for the field, you need to get to those other things for it to truly be able to have the kind of penetration and long run impact that we have. Last point on that. So I mentioned that in my dissertation, I talked about the 80s and the, 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 the first iteration of entrepreneurship support and economic development. That energy died in the 90s. Like it was very short run. And so the same thing could happen to ecosystem building. It doesn't mean that some of those programs still don't exist, but the level of energy, the level of intensity, the level of focus from various policymakers and others, it kind of jumped up from the 70s and the 80s. And then in the 90s, it came right back down. And my fear with the field of ecosystem building is that if we don't really don't put more bones in the field, that it's going to end up doing the same thing. And we'll still be talking about ecosystem building, you know, going forward, because we still talk about business incubators. We still talk about, you know, to a lesser degree, state-run venture capital firms, import, export, um, you know, education and training and technical assistance, but not with that same energy that that led, led to 200 incubators being created in the um, 1980s. So those are just some things to think about as we work on the field. All right, I've got one quick comment, but uh, there were two potential questions. One, Christy, your comment around how do you kind of uh, break down barriers to perceived uh, legitimacy, right, for entrepreneurs? And then uh, also uh, another one from uh, Chrisanne. I'll have you both ask your questions and uh, Dell will keep them to like two minutes each. But before we do that, one quick point, you know, you'd made about uh, how do we change the narrative? And what we found is that the problem is they keep bringing back the same solutions without actually seeing whether it works on the ground. So for, for example, capital access. Uh, in uh, When they talk about capital access, they say, you know, let's better fund CDFIs, better fund other uh, nonprofit lenders. But they don't address how much money do these micro businesses need. For example, uh, CDFIs are incentivized to provide $250,000 or bigger loans. Most small businesses, micro businesses need less than 100,000, in most cases, 25,000 or less. So they end up then with online lenders where there's a lot more predatory lending because the system, even though it's well-funded, it's not designed for the small and micro businesses. So we got to really start thinking about not just the solution, but is this solution actually working? And then elevate this uh, to the policymakers and show them data. Like we were able to influence outcomes in Michigan by saying the people have the, the, the micro business community that we surveyed, they don't want $150,000, $200,000 loans. Their medium in, median income is $27,000. They're never going to apply for that loan. So, you know, really using data to go and make uh, very stark cases for these kinds of don't just give us the money, let's actually change the way we define some of these problems or we'll be doing the same thing over and over again. Problem with credit and capital access is, is very systemic in nature. This very structural, there, there's structural holes in the United States and across the banking system and the lending in, in that. And this is why ecosystem building is important because if you're really looking at ecosystem building in the ecosystem of finances it relates to small businesses, then you're looking at the range and the types of funding that's gonna be needed to effectively mobilize entrepreneurs at, at a significant scale. Um, and, and right now, if so even your, your micro businesses, CDFIs, if you look at the absolute amount that they make, that they, they put out there to small businesses every year, it's still relative to what the banking industry will do is very, very low. And the problem is, and is that even banks don't like to lend to small businesses as a whole because they can't price the product to the degree in which the market will bear. And so then you have your online letters that are coming to fill the gap. But when you look at it as a whole, most people, 50% of, of small businesses, well, women for sure, 
um, start businesses with their own money, friends, family, and fools. The problem is that when it comes to equity, economic equity inclusivity, if the average you know, net worth of a black household is roughly like $15,000 and the average net worth of a white household is like 10 times that and it fluctuates depending on the study, then even if both start with 50% of friends, family, and fools, their access to startup resources. So, so almost this capital flaw is, is, or structural flaw within the capital markets for small business is, is something that we have to solve. And I think ecosystem builders are in a great place to solve that because we're the ones that are looking at a broad swath, cross-cutting you know, swath of small businesses and conversations so that we really understand that what they need or with something like what you're doing with startup space where you can kind of look at how people are moving in relative real time and kind of pull abstract that and kind of say, these, while we know we have to work across the spectrum of capital, if we really want to have some short-term wins and, and kind of move the needle in specific areas, this is probably where we need to figure out the funding problem. Yeah, exactly. All right. So Christy, I'll let you go first and we'll try to keep these to just two minutes so we can uh, end on time. But Christy, why don't you go first? Hey, Dr. Gons. Good to see you um, and everyone else. Um, I really wanted you to talk a little bit more about how you see ecosystem building post-COVID. So, I mean, I know, realize we're still in the pandemic. So what does that look like from your perspective? Yeah, well, we released a guide last year with the Atlanta Fed called Small Business Recovery, um, Small Business Recovery Guide, um, you know, which is designed to address the, the, the challenges that diverse entrepreneurs face post-COVID and, and prep them. Um, I think we're, we're actually sitting in a pretty good place relative to where you were. And I know that sounds weird, um, but the reason that I say that, I'm, and I'm talking about not from a societal standpoint as a whole, I'm talking about it specifically from the attention that has been placed upon what we do. And so the, the people have said, this is a small business pandemic. People have said, based upon the social justice issues of last summer, George Floyd, Maid Aubrey, all those folks, we wanna focus on small business and we wanna focus on equitable small business. So I think we have a, the, one of the better opportunities that we have for the field, if we can, again, going back to what we talked about, clearly articulate the value, build the relationships. And one thing we haven't talked about is have a clearly definable program, like you, you, a program of ecosystem building. You can't just walk in and say, hey, yeah, you know, we, I meet entrepreneurs at the coffee shop and we connect them to other folks, right? You have to, you have to, you know, do your, I would say business model canvas. I think Rodney Sampson said he's developing an ecosystem builder canvas something like that so that when you sit in front of that person and you, you've worked on intro to the relationship, you can say, this is what we do. This is the impact that it's gonna have and then work to see if they'll, they'll get your support. And we talked a lot about the funding side and this is my last 10 seconds. We need to talk more about the community side. Like a lot of you think you have great relationships with diverse people, do you really? Or have you descended into your comfort zone of the network of relationships that you prefer to build? That's a that's a conversation for another day, though. Yeah, so we'll have to bring you back. There's uh, lots of other questions. There are also some questions uh, in the chat if others want to take a stab at it. I don't know if Chrisanne is back, but I will really quickly just point out that um, uh, if you have other questions for Dell, you can reach out. Dell, what's the best way for uh, participants to reach out to you? Yeah, you can. Um, my email is weird. Um, it's dell.gynes at kc.frb.org. So we'll put that in the chat. We'll put yeah, that you put that in the chat, but um, you can find me anywhere. Um, most of the time I, I talk about, you know, work stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter. So it's I am Del Gynes on Twitter or it's just Del Gynes on um, LinkedIn. But don't follow the guy that catfished me that said basically replicated my profile and said he was a oil executive from Texas, which would have been nice. I'd probably get paid more, but. <laughs> so I've put those two things uh, in the chat here, both your website uh, and also uh, your email address. So please feel free to reach out to Dell. If you'd like a personal introduction from us, email us. Um, you can email me, David Ponraj at startupspace.app. I can make a warm introduction for you. And then uh, a really quick uh, plug. Uh, we have the next community of practice. We have Ian Hathaway. Uh, those of you uh, that don't know Ian, he's written the startup community way uh, from Techstars. 
Uh, he'll be here on October 20th. We'll have a link in the chat to be able to sign up for that session. Uh, so feel free to uh, join that. That'll also be recorded. And, and before we close, Dell, I'll give you the last word. You know, if we have to take one takeaway from this call that we will remember, what would you like that to be for us? Um, well, first, you know, I would just like to say, I know the work that you do is hard, but it's very, very necessary as ecosystem builders. Um, relationship management is hard. It takes a little emotional toll sometimes and you have highs and lows. So I appreciate everything that you do. And I think it's vitally important for the long run health of the, the United States as a whole. The second I would say is prioritize relationships um, first, both, both what we would call horizontal and, and vertical. Um, you know, get better to know, have coffee with more diverse entrepreneurs and other providers and really work to immerse yourself and get in the face positively of your local policymakers. I think if you, if you do that, you have a better pathway into some of the opportunities that, you know, government funding can provide you. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dell. It was a pleasure having you on the call today. Thank you. Good to see everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Ponrash. Special thanks to Dell Gines for joining us. Show notes and cover art by creative director Jackie Dietrich edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviews, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.